From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. While fans of the Orange and Blue routinely pledge to stick together through all kinds of weather, after the results this past week, there's no doubt it's great to be a Florida Gator, especially in mid-February. Between new trophies headed to the Lemmerin Center and head-turning performances in multiple sports, it was a banner week to be sure. On today's show, we'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter to discuss baseball's sweep over Miami, the week in men's hoops, gymnastics capturing an early SEC title, a surprising senior day for women's basketball, eight straight SEC crowns for men's swimming, and the relevance of the NFL Combine and the PAT. Then, McDonald's All-American Trey Mann joins us to talk about growing up in Gainesville, meeting high expectations, and much more. But first, it may only be February on the calendar, but the hype for the Florida-Miami series was at a May or even June-like level last weekend. The Gators toppled the Hurricanes in front of sold-out crowds all weekend in Coral Gables, so we open our roundtable with Scott and Chris by analyzing how they did it. Yeah, if there was any debate between Miami and Florida, who should be number one, obviously the Gators took care of that. Uh, They swept the series, and it was a series defined by good pitching, clutch hitting, and just an intense atmosphere. If you saw any of those games from... uh, Alex Rodriguez Park. I mean, both teams were into it. There was a little bit of chirping. The fans were into it. Uh, it felt like uh, it felt like uh, you know an NCAA regional or something. And uh, for Florida to go down there and uh, win all three uh, this early in the season, that's a good sign. You know, we've talked about this team and what it needs to do to to be better than it was in 2019. It all starts on the pitching mound. And uh, you look at the starters in that series, uh, Adam. Tommy Mace on Friday night, Jack Leftwich on Saturday, and then Hunter Barco, the freshman, on Sunday. They combined uh, for 18 in the third innings, gave up just eight hits and three runs in the series, struck out a combined 21. Uh, and that's what you call getting it done at the start with the starters. And, you know, all three games were tight. You had the bullpen come through in a, a couple of those extra inning games. And then he had a different set of players, a big hit by Jub Fabian, Saturday's game to extra innings, and Kirby McMullen had a homer. A really a total team effort, a lot of different players emerging uh, as contributors, and I think that's kind of the uh, identity of this team that we're going to see in 2020. A lot of faces chipping in, and it, it all starts on the pitcher's mound. Yes, yeah, certainly. Kevin O'Sullivan has to be thrilled with what he saw, and, and you talked about the emotion, too. I think that was really evident. If you saw some of the bigger moments, just how much it meant to them to win that series the way that they did. So certainly a huge start for them, and now you go into a lot of these kind of midweek games, smaller games. And an interesting note on that this week where uh, Kevin O'Sullivan actually missed Wednesday's game against Stetson and the reason why it leads to a, a really interesting story that, that you told pretty thoroughly on FloridaGators.com Scott about his connection to 9-11 and how that came back in you know a, a very sad and unfortunate way this week. Yeah uh, you know when they were down in Miami uh, over the weekend uh, Adam he learned that his uh, his cousin Daniel Foley uh, they call him Danny he's a firefighter in New York City, uh, was involved in the rescue efforts at Ground Zero, uh, you know, after 9-11. And this is a story that has been uh, talked about a lot uh, nationally. And so many of these firefighters, these uh, these people who worked down at Ground Zero in the uh, days and months that followed the uh, 9-11 terrorist attacks, where there was so much debris and dust and toxic chemicals in the air, a lot of these uh, former firefighters or policemen, they're, they're developing cancers. And uh, Daniel Foley was one of those guys. And he, he unfortunately, you know, he was a, a big fan of the Gators baseball program. And Sully got word on Saturday that he had died. And, uh, of course, they win that game in extra innings. And, you know, he, he was telling me that, you know, he's got to believe that 
his cousin was uh was up there rooting for the Gators. But the story even goes back further than that, Adam, which took me back. I mean, as you said, uh, you know, this is Daniel Foley who passed away, but his brother, the older brother, actually, Tommy Foley, was a fireman who responded the day of the attacks to the World Trade Center and was killed uh, when they collapsed. He was one of the, uh, the firemen down there who lost his life trying to save others. And here it is, 19 years later almost, and his brother, who this is probably the most amazing part of the story. In those recovery efforts back in 2001, on the 11th day after the terrorist attacks, Daniel Foley, you know, who had, he was going around the clock 20 hours, go home, sleep for a couple hours, then go back to the site to help try to find any remains or just to clear the rubble. He was committed to find his brother. They actually found uh, his brother. Uh, he did, was part of the group that did. And uh, again, it's a, it's a tragic story. It goes deep with Sully because he was so close with both of those guys. He's a, uh, a New York guy, uh, family all over it, both sides, mom and dad's side, are full of firefighters. So it's a, it's a been a difficult few days for him. You know, it's interesting. It seems so long ago, I think, for all of us who, who aren't in New York and, and around that area. When I visited New York last year, if you look around even on the subways, they have all these signs about, you know, what numbers to call if you're suffering from 9-11 related injuries or illnesses that have been long gestating like this one. So you realize it it's still very much in the present tense for people up there who are a part of it, even if for us outside the area, you know, it seems like something that, that's just a part of history. No, it's very true, and uh, I think Sully had a good quote along those lines that, you know, it's still real. It's like 9-11 has never ended, and uh, like I said, here we are 19 years later, and he's lost a second cousin because of the horrible day in our history. Obviously, we wish Kevin O'Sullivan and his family the best, and of course, their extended family as well going through this difficult time. I want to turn our attention to Gator basketball now. And uh, Chris, if you look at the way the week played out, Kentucky, I think a lot of people felt that was sort of a, a good loss. They played better than expected. They were really competitive right to the very end, but ultimately still lost. The question is, would that carry over? Would they play with that same energy against LSU? The answer was a resounding yes. Uh, just tell us about everything that stood out to you from the way that Florida really just throttled the Tigers from start to finish. This win over LSU, Adam, looked an awful lot like, I want to say, like like the three consecutive wins before that Kentucky game, um, Texas A&M, uh, Vanderbilt, and Arkansas were those three wins, except this one was more on steroids because it was more complete. Um, the performance at Kentucky uh, was admirable, in my opinion, um, and not necessarily because of the you know, the defense that they played at the end to make it a, uh, a one possession game very late in, late in that one, the turnovers that were forced and over, but they handled the adversity pretty well in there. And obviously a place that's very difficult to contend with when Kentucky goes on their seven or nine point runs. So anyway, that they did have something to build on and you made the point carry over and whatever it was, it did carry over. LSU is a good team that came in 10 and five. They started the week tied for second. Um, Auburn had won the night before, so LSU needed to win to maintain in second place. Florida was one game back. Um, Florida took it to them from the get-go, scored seven, seven straight points to start the game. They never trailed in this game. You know, it, it Kentucky, Noah Locke uh, did not score. It was his first uh, game he had not scored in over a year. And in this game, he didn't score till he hit a three, I want to say with a minute and a half left in the game, maybe two and a half minutes left in the game. But guess what? It didn't matter because they were up by 17. I think that speaks to where this team is headed right now. To a man, you talk to these guys after the game, Scotty Lewis, Andrew Nemhar, Keontae Johnson. They're saying, we bought in. We, we know how to share the ball now. We know it's, it's not going to be one guy's night necessarily. Um, the more we move the ball, the more unselfishly we play, the better we play offensively. And the better they play offensively, it's just mentally they're going to play better defensively. It shouldn't be that way. But with the, you have a, when you have a young team, it turns out being that way. Now, having said that it's not necessarily a couple guys, uh, Keontae Johnson is becoming a force in this league. Uh, he was 11 of 15 from the floor, 11 rebounds, his seventh triple-double of the season. He had 25 points. That's a career high. That's a week after he had a 24-point career high last week. Uh, Scotty Lewis was tremendous, career high 18 points. He had a couple alley-oop catch and slams uh, late in the game that were certainly highlight reel uh, material. 
um, just to score 81 points and to hold this, the, the LSU came into the game, Adam, uh, the number three team in the country in offensive efficiency. And this is the second fewest points they've scored uh, in the SC, in an SEC game this season. They scored 60 earlier against Mississippi State in a game they won. I don't, I don't want to say they're never in the game, but they never were within 10 points in the second half uh, after Florida went on their their uh, run early in the second half. Um, Emmett Williams is a handful for LSU, the big forward. I mean, he was 10 of 12 from the floor at 25 points. But beyond that, the defense that Florida played on the uh, excellent backcourt. Remember, Javante Swart and Skylar Mays were the starting guards, along with uh, Trey Mount Waters, who's gone now. They're starting guards on the team that won the SEC championship last year. Javante Smart had eight points. Skylar Mays had a season-low three points, one for six from the floor. And that's Scotty Lewis. That's a lot of Scotty Lewis right there. So really good win. Florida's got 18 wins right now uh, to 10 losses. They're uh, tied for LSU and in third place they're in good position to kind of hold if they can hold on and get a, a first round bye in the sec tournament and and really uh they don't have to wait uh very long to try to improve their situation um granted uh, tennessee got smashed pretty good i think lost by 17 uh wednesday night uh, at arkansas but florida you know florida has won once at tennessee uh since 2012 and that's where they're headed uh saturday to play an afternoon game. I believe it's a CBS game. I think they've only won two of the last 12 games in Knoxville. To be, uh, I have to double-check that, but I'm pretty sure that's what those numbers are. Tennessee will, will play excellent defense. Uh, they've had Florida's number as of late. But regardless, that will be a quad one opportunity. It will be a top 75 RPI game on the road. So Florida added a quad one because they beat an LSU team, which was in the top 30 on their home floor. Um, they can certainly go on the road and get another one, and they're going to have another opportunity a week from Saturday when they finish the season um, uh, against Kentucky. So uh, there's still a lot out there for Florida to play for. Uh, I, I, of course, I jumped over the Georgia game next Wednesday. Certainly that won't be an easy game there, uh, but Florida can certainly make some hay with what they got. They've won uh, four out of the last five, six out of the last eight, and playing their best basketball this season and most confident and also the most unselfish basketball. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a credit to the buy-in that the players have had. It's also credit to this coaching staff to getting them there. I thought of Mike White had maybe the best quote, one of the best quotes of the season when somebody asked him, is this, is this the identity you forged? You said, I think we're getting closer to the way we want to play. He goes, unfortunately we didn't figure it out immediately, but we didn't think we would either. And, I think that kind of can be a message teaching point for fans. This is, this is a young team. They, they didn't expect miracles from the beginning, but they thought they would figure some things out uh, down the line. And February is late in the season, but it's not too late in the season. Again, playing the best basketball of the year, heading into March. Good for the Gators um, to have gotten to where they are right now. Um, I want to turn our attention to Gator Gymnastics, Scott. You were there last weekend. You know, it's not even March yet, so the fact that the SEC title has already been clinched seems pretty incredible considering how competitive gymnastics is in the Southeastern Conference. But the Gators just continue to roll and, you know, led by Trinity Thomas, putting up multiple 10 performances. They're, they're really not looking back right now. They're moving full steam ahead. Now, this has a, uh, uh, been a dominating season for the, the Gators gymnastics team. Uh, you knew they were going to be good. I didn't know how they were going to be this good. Trinity Thomas, they should go ahead and just name the SEC uh, gymnast the week after her because she won it this <laughs> week for the sixth consecutive week. Wow. I don't know if that's a record, but uh, it's got to be knocking at the door. You know, and she was not even at her best in the win over Alabama that clinched the uh, SEC regular season title. And you got to remember, you know, this is only the fourth year of the uh, the SEC regular season title. Uh, they started that in 2017 to go along with the uh, SEC championships tournament, which they'll have later on this season. But for Florida, uh, beating Alabama at home uh, last Friday clinched the uh, second straight regular season title for the Gators. Uh, and you, like you said, it, it we're we're just barely past the midseason mark. They still have uh, a trip to Georgia, a trip to Penn State, then a final home meet. Uh, next month, and then they'll go up to uh, to Georgia for the SEC meet. But uh, if they keep performing at this pace, I mean, this is a team that after last season's disappointing and really a, a shocking way, 
to end the season when they surprisingly didn't make the NCAA finals. Uh, this team looks like it could easily not only be there in the finals, Adam, but they're, they they should contend for the title if they continue to, to perform this way. And uh, it's a great problem for Jenny Rowland, the head coach. She was talking about, you know, there's going to be a there's gonna be a couple of people are back from injuries. Some people are really come out and, and up their level. And she's got some tough decisions with the lineup uh, coming up in these final three meets. And I think that's where the focus is to try to, uh, I guess, fine tune everything going into the postseason and uh, get this team even better. So uh, for now, though, the Gators are uh, are performing as good as we've seen them in a long time. Yeah, and the key is keeping that momentum up. As you noted, there, there's still three meets left. And then if you look at the way their calendar breaks down, you have some gaps in between the SEC, the regionals, the championships for the NCAA. So they're still literally months away from what would be the, the Super Six and that shot at another national title. So they will, uh, they got to find a way to keep that momentum up despite this really clinch. It's the, the Braves of the 90s conundrum. Hopefully uh, gymnastics deals with that better than our, our beloved Braves did. No doubt, no doubt. We talked about all the success that baseball is having so far. If baseball is rolling, that means softball is too. And they just came back from their yearly California trip where they test themselves against some of the best in the country early on in the calendar, previewing potential postseason matchups. We've seen World Series previews come from that. Uh, and they, they did pretty well, Chris. They had a good showing there. Didn't quite beat everybody they took on. But I think Tim Walton, recognizing you know how young this team is and how much growing they have to do, probably pretty pleased with the results. Yeah, and from preseason, uh, Tim Walton spoke about how he thought this team was going to probably have to win games, even play games, uh, differently than some of the teams in the uh, than than his most recent ones. For the main reason, they, there's no Kelly Barnhill. Um, it's been since 2007 since this team hasn't returned an All-American pitcher. So uh, by Kelly Barnhill, but um, enter some players who were on the team last year, some arms that were uh, in the bullpen last year, where they're talking about Natalie Lugo, Katie Chronister, uh, Elizabeth Hightower, who got to, you know, up their profile a little bit. And so far, Natalie Lugo has been the one who's kind of carried the water. I mean, she's six and one. She's got a one four zero ERA, a freshman by the name of Ry- Riley Trilicek. I mean, she, teams are hitting 324 against her, but she's at 7-1 and 1.58. She was the one that Tim turned to in that UCLA game. She pitched the last four innings, but it was the defense that kind of let him down with a couple errors late in that game. They lost uh, in eight innings, 5-4. to four. Um, If you ask Tim, he would probably say B-plus so far. I mean, 16-2. and two, um, They went and played four ranked teams out there, lost to number one UCLA late, beat Arizona State. Um, you know, the two losses this year, number one, UCLA and number 17, Michigan, they're finding they have a bat and Sharla Eccles, the transfer uh, from Michigan State. Um, she joins Kendall Lindelman and kind of in the power order of that of that lineup uh, Two uh, Big Ten transfers. Lindelman obviously came from Minnesota last year. Hannah Adams picking up where she left off in the postseason last year when she got red hot with the bat. She's at 380. Um, finding some things like you mentioned, the freshman girl by the name of uh, Bailey Goddard from down in the Orlando area. She's hitting 320 or three homers, four for four on the base pass. So she hit a big home run opposite field, uh, a homer against UCLA to tie that game. So kind of like finding some things out about this team right now. And we'll be focusing on how those pitchers maintain because, uh, like I said, Lugo is the one who's stepping up. Trilicek is the other one, the freshman who's stepping up. They're going to have some more marquee opportunities starting this weekend. Adam, and as a grizzled, battle-tested softball person that you are, uh, the Raging <laughs> Cajuns come to town, and we know uh, Louisiana. They're currently ranked uh, 10th in the country, so we have a top-10 series this weekend, and that'll be measuring stick for the Gators uh, on their home field this weekend. Um, I want to move on to, to women's basketball now. And amazing, so many of these things happened at home this weekend. Uh, but women's basketball celebrating their senior day, a really important game against Arkansas, a top 25 team, a program on the rise. And we talked a few weeks ago about the really improbable win the Gators had at Kentucky. This was their biggest home win of the season. And uh, again, Scott, you know, it's not gonna it's not gonna change things drastically in terms of their record or their overall picture, but it just shows again signs of improvement. And Florida now is in much better position to finish with a winning record for the first time since Cam Newbauer took over. And when you're starting from the place that he did, these incremental steps are all part of that building process. 
Yeah, when you look at where this program was uh, going into Cam Newbauer's third year, uh, they were coming off of what an eight-win season. Uh, really had bottomed out as he tried to rebuild and start over. And, uh, you know, here they are with, uh, I think, what, 15 wins, a uh, chance to get 16 here in the next couple of games. That would double their win total and go up to the SEC tournament, maybe add another one or two. But, yeah, you're, you're right. This is a good step for the program. The win over Arkansas on Sunday followed a, a, a tough loss where they went on the road against an Alabama team that you thought they might have a good chance to beat. Well, they lose that one, but they come back home and they beat uh, number 22 Arkansas. And uh, it, it was, uh, I think, an important win because it got them to 15 wins. It guarantees them at least a, a 500 record and most likely – an NIT berth, which uh, getting back to the postseason, that's another huge step for the program. And uh, they're still not where they want to go. Uh, we all know that. But I think for the first time in really three or four years, Adam, uh, you, you can look at the skater basketball pro, or women's basketball program and say, okay, they've got some of the pieces that can fit long-term, like freshman Lavender Briggs, uh, the centerpiece there, and you're starting to you're starting to see it come together. And then it's of course competing with the uh, South Carolinas and Mississippi States uh, in the SEC because those two programs have been dominant really since Tennessee's reign ended after Pat Summit uh, left. And now that's uh, that's where you want to be. But I, for right now, Florida has finally climbed out of that last place, last two places spot. Now they're trying to get to the middle of the pack and eventually work their way up toward the top. Uh, so I think with what we've seen this year, Cam Newbauer and his staff have done a good job to uh, to make some progress there. If women's basketball is a program that is on the rise, uh, men's swimming and diving has been on for a while and is staying on that level because they just collected their eighth straight SEC championship. And that's uh, that's an impressive dynasty talk there, Scott, especially when you consider uh, Greg Troy leaving not too long ago. And they've continued to maintain and, and win it at a very high level despite the change in leadership. Yeah, I mean, not only going from Greg Troy to uh, Anthony Nesty as head coach, but obviously losing uh, one of the the most uh, dominant swimmers in the world in Caleb Dressel on the men's side. And, you know, it, they've just uh, reloaded there with a guy like Kieran Smith, who uh, what a performance he had uh, setting an American record in his event and uh, setting the stage early in the meet for the Gators to get a nice lead and just start riding that momentum. And, uh, you know, it, like I said, I think I tweeted eight, an eight peat's hard. So is a, <laughs> so a seven peat and a six peat and all the other ones that came before that. But to win eight in a row in anything, uh, that's an amazing streak. But that's like two full classes, you know, coming in. Like, and it's it just a testament to the program and to Anthony Nesty, what he's been able to do. Because anytime that you transition, even though he was here with Greg Troy, you know that he's doing certain things that he wanted to place his stamp on the program. So there's going to be adjustments to make. And they've responded well, and it's been a seamless transition. And uh, it will be next step for them is, uh, you know, kind of like we talked about earlier, with the uh, gymnastics team, how they can fine-tune and get ready for the postseason and see what they can do on the national stage. Yeah, so lots of success for uh, for current Gator teams across the board. In terms of a, uh, a big moment for some former Gators, that leads us into our PAT this week, which is about the NFL Combine, which, like everything else the NFL offseason, has been eventized to the point where I, I can't believe that there is this much hype around a literal skills and drills competition that's in theory just for scouts to kind of make some decisions relative to the draft. But the uh, the hunger for football, it, it never wanes around the country, as we've learned. So because of the coverage of this, we've had some crazy stories come out specifically about hand size. Apparently, Joe Burrow's hands are small. I don't know what that means, but that's supposedly a big deal because there's other quarterbacks before him that with the same size hands have not lived up to expectations. And then Jake Fromm's hands are even smaller than Joe Burrow's hands, uh, to which Fromm came out and said, hey, these are the the same three hands that went to three straight SEC championships, uh, which is, I think, a very fair point to make. So I I personally have always found the combine to be a little ridiculous and some of the judgments made on players based on some measurements and metrics that seem to be arbitrary Uh, are taken very, very seriously. So my question for you guys is, how seriously should teams take some of this combine information? And if so, which measurements and metrics actually matter in the big picture? 
Yeah, you know, Adam, we're in a parallel universe when you're watching college basketball and the ESPN crawl goes under it talking about the size of Joe Burrow's hands. <laughs> I mean, have you ever seen the Seinfeld episode of Man Hands? I don't think I have, actually. <laughs> she has man hands. So, so Joe Burrow doesn't have man hands, but Joe Burrow's hands were good enough to uh, throw for like a million yards and 70,000 touchdowns at LSU and lead him to a, a national championship this past. So, I mean, I, are metrics important? I did 10 combines during my NFL days. Yes, they are important, but they're not the be-all, end-all. Um, I've always believed in just talking to executives and what have you, the most important element, it, 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 you know, Tape is important. What what you put on tape is absolutely important, but it's how you fit, where you fit into the organization and the plan that they have for you by and large. I mean, I just remember going to the combine um, early. I want to say it was 2001, maybe. Terrell Suggs was the all-time sacks leader, I think, in uh, college football, and he ran a 4.84. Oh, Terrell Suggs. He had a pretty good career. I think he's still playing. He just won a Super Bowl for Kansas City. I think so. Yeah, I think he's still playing. Yeah. yeah. That's right. That's right. Uh, you know, and of course, this is the be all end all. Tom Brady ran a 5.28 40 yard dash. Wow. Okay. And went drafted 199th. Um, it's how he fit in. I, I, I think we can probably agree. Tom, if Tom Brady had gone to, say, the Cleveland Browns or to the Bengals, or maybe I'm being unfair to these guys, either the Chargers, I'm just throwing uh, uh, Redskins, somebody out there, um, I don't know that he would have had the career he had. Um, so again, I, I, I put more stock in the fit. Do, do, do metrics matter? Do shuttle runs matter? Do bench press matter? Yeah, but I've seen too many guys who went and benched 225, you know, 11 times that, that still went on and had pretty good NFL careers. I mean, you got to go with height and weight, of course. Uh, you know, Drew Brees measured under six feet. You know, he's going to the Hall of Fame. Um, closer to home, Joe Hayden, if I'm not mistaken, was close to a 4'7 in the 40 uh, back when he when when he went to the combine and uh, he's probably on his second uh, big fat contract, I would think. Um, another guy who I remember uh, not performing well at the combine was Anquan Bolden, you know, receiver. He was a great quarterback in high school. Kind of was he a tweener or not? He had a pretty good career in the National Football League. So I think you do put stock in it. Absolutely. It's important stuff. It's all part of the package. It's all baked into the cake when they're sitting in there in the uh in those offices and they're developing their boards and what have you. But, you know, maybe, maybe one of those numbers is a determining factor, but these guys crunch the numbers so much and do so much homework. I don't think it can kill you. I think if you show up and you're a jackass in the interviews <laughs> and stuff like that, and you're, and what, and what shows up with social media, when the investigators start, uh, start poking and prodding around that kind of stuff that has uh, every bit, the impact, if not more impact than um, how big somebody's, hands are i think joe burrow will be fine uh let's make sure he fits with cincinnati and what cincinnati wants to do it may have more to do in the long run of what's around him and i think it will than uh than the size of joe's burrow's hands because he seemed to throw the ball just fine in a pretty good league this past year well adam um as someone who would rather watch reruns of uh brady bunch or about anything <laughs> compared to the NFL Combine. <laughs> the Combine, to me, I mean, is that stuff important? I think it, it's a gauge. It's like, um, you know, it's like anything else in life. There, there's gauges that give us a foundation to make uh, decisions on. And, of course, if you got a guy who's blowing away everybody in the 40 and you can say this is the fastest player I've ever clocked, I mean, that's going to catch your attention. But, you know, there's a rare, I don't know how how much different it is for Joe Burrow's hand size compared to Joe Montana's hand size compared to Tom Brady's hand size. I'm not that much of a football junkie uh, to know how much that matters in the big picture. It, like if I'm evaluating Joe Burrow and I'm an NFL scout right now and, you know, I get this report here say Joe Burrow's hand size is small. Okay, that's cool. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, guess what? His stats are really big. Yeah. You know, his his career at LSU is really big. Uh, his paycheck that he's getting ready to get is going to be really big. And whatever he does in the NFL, whether he's a flame out in two or three years, or if in 12 or 15 years we're talking about him in the same breath that we're talking about Tom Brady and Peyton Manning, guess what? 
nobody's going to be talking about his hand size. Even a guy like Ryan Leaf, who is the biggest, one of the biggest uh, bombs in NFL draft history, I don't think in the end his hand size or his foot size got him. It was his bad decision-making, his interceptions, his losses. And, of course, he had some, I think, emotional issues at that time in his life that made some poor choices on the field. That stuff got him. So, you know, I mean, I, I, it's to me, it's it's funny that people are talking about the hand size, but the only time I care about hand size is when I'm going to buy a pair of gloves. <laughs> well, great fodder as always for our PAT. Uh, thank you guys for that. Thank you for keeping us abreast on the myriad things going on in Gator sports right now. Just a huge time of year and another busy weekend coming up. So we encourage people to check out FloridaGators.com for all of your latest content and follow you on Twitter at GatorScott at Gators Chris. Uh, thank you guys. We'll talk to you next week. All right, Adam. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. It's hard enough being a freshman trying to learn the ropes entering the college arena, so the added pressure that comes from lofty titles certainly doesn't help. There's likely no greater distinction for a prep athlete in any sport than being named a McDonald's All-American. But beyond that, how about being the first one ever from Gainesville? That's the weight that freshman Trey Mann has to bear. So we begin our conversation with a local star by learning more about his Gainesville roots. Most of my family is from Gainesville. Uh, my mom and dad's family, so I've been here my whole life. Um, it was kind of it was kind of cool growing up in Gainesville, especially having a couple uh sports teams around like the Gators and then Orlando got the Magic and stuff like that. So. I was able to go to some sports stuff when I was younger, and it's just been it's been a cool place to grow up in. I know that you're one of six kids, so can you tell us where you fit into that group and how crazy was that household with so many running around? I'm the oldest of six. Oh wow, oldest. Okay. I have three sisters and three brothers. Um, it wasn't it wasn't like a, a big house, so uh, kind of a lot going on in the house. Um, everybody, mostly all of us, played sports, so. Mom and dad was just going back and forth between sports and stuff like that. I think a lot of times when I talk to guys and they'll be they'll be interested in a sport because their older brother played it or because their dad was really into it. If you're the, the oldest of everybody, where was the guidance for you to get into sports? What sort of pushed you into those directions? Um, I have to say it was my dad. He, he played basketball in high school and then uh, they had me. So he stopped playing basketball. And then when I was younger... I just watched him play like he played at parks and stuff like that. So I watched him while I was younger. And then I just kind of fell in love with it from being around it so long. Were, were there other sports that you thought about pursuing too? Or was it always basketball for you? Um, basketball was a sport I wanted to pursue. But um, I played a couple of other sports. I played football and baseball. But they were just like sports just to play for fun. What positions did you play in, in football and baseball? Um, football, I played tight end and a little bit of quarterback. And then... Baseball, I play right field and a shortstop. Hmm. You know, I always like to ask guys how a, another sport or another activity may be translated for them. For example, uh, when I talked to Scotty a few weeks ago, I asked him how ballet translated to basketball, and he said it helped him a lot with his footwork. Um, I, I don't think you did ballet like he did, but in terms of the other sports you played, how did they affect or bleed over into your basketball game? <laughs> um I could say football made me focus on basketball a lot more because um I didn't have a, a really good time playing football. So it, <laughs> it, just let me know. it just let me know that basketball was going to be the, the sport that I was going to try to pursue. Why, why didn't you enjoy playing football? I'd probably say it was, it was too physical for me back then. I didn't like getting tackled very hard and stuff <laughs> like that. So, so after a couple of times getting tackled real hard, I just... I just didn't didn't like it. You mentioned right off the top that you know a big part of your life growing up in Gainesville was going to Gator sporting events. How big of a fan were you? I mean, were you the kind of guy who was watching every football game, every basketball game? How involved were you? Would you say? Um, I wasn't the biggest fan. I didn't. I wasn't like watching every football game and stuff like that. But I was just a, a basketball fan. Like if there was a game that we could go to, I would want to go. Um, I would watch some games on TV. Um, I, I wanted to go to NBA games and stuff like that, but I wasn't like a, a really big fan. I just was a fan of basketball. So it's funny because just having last week the the dedication of the court to Billy Donovan, I'm sure a lot of the guys that were there for that were people you grew up watching play. Which ones 
were the most impactful for you that you remember looking up to? I have to say Joe Kim because uh, right now Bradley Bill, because he's one of my favorite players in the NBA right now. But um, I remember Joe Kim the most because I was younger. And um, I always tell people this story when they ask about the older basketball team. Mm-hmm. So um, I was my mom worked at Ballyhoo and the Gators, the whole Gator team came in for like signing to sign basketballs and jerseys and stuff like that. And um, me and my brother was just sitting there eating. And Joe Kim walked, the whole team walked by, and Joe Kim came and grabbed one of our french fries out of our basket. <laughs> so that's something I'll never forget. And I, I just tell that story all the time. So I have to say it was Joe Kim. Did you have a chance to tell him that when uh, when he was there this weekend? Um, no, nah, I ran into him at a relish that night, but we were just talking more about like basketball stuff. <laughs> I, I'll tell him that story one day, hopefully. That's that's funny. Um and what was that like getting to interact with all of those former players? I mean, you talked about being obviously a big NBA fan to have Billy Donovan come in and speak to the team and to have so many former NBA all-stars all there kind of at your disposal. What was that like? How, how were you able to take advantage of that? Do you feel? Uh, oh, that was big, especially um, Billy Donovan coming in and speaking to us. The whole team took in a lot of the stuff that he was saying, because it was all like good information that we've been, we've been using it. Ever since then, like the little stuff that he told us, we've been trying to put into the team, and um, just just being able to interact with the NBA players, that was that was cool too. Um, I, I went to Relish around like 11 or 12, and Bradley Bill walked in and he came and shook my hand, and then came and sat with me to eat, and we talked a little bit. And then Murph came in, um, Fraser came in, and then um, Joe Kim came in as we were leaving. So it, it was just cool just to know that it's one big family still. Like they treated us like we're their little brothers. So that was that was cool. Mm-hmm. Were you starstruck at all? I mean, were you sort of caught off guard by being around those guys and having that kind of experience with them? I mean, not not really, because I was I was around a couple more NBA players, but it was kind of weird at first because like <laughs> like trying to have a conversation with with them that was kind of <laughs> that was kind of weird. But I wasn't like starstruck or anything. <laughs> what What did you guys talk about? Fraser came in and uh, he was talking about the college life, like to enjoy it and have fun and stuff like that. And he told me a little bit about his career, like after college, and he just told me to take advantage of it and just just have fun. Joe Kim was talking about just loving your teammates and just trying to do everything to win. And he, he was more like a family guy, like talking more about love, loving each other and stuff. And then Bradley, we were just talking about like, like basketball stuff, like what he did, like this season, what I did, this season, what I did the game that game that they came to and stuff like that. I'm just glad Joe Kim didn't get you into trouble because you never know what that guy's going to be off doing. <laughs> oh, no. <nah. laughs> <laughs> so, you know, growing up in Gainesville, I think a lot of people would assume, oh, you know, he always wanted to be a Gator. Was that always the case? Or when the recruiting process started, were there other places that you were seriously considering going? I was a Gator, like, my whole life. But I also had, like, other people, like NBA players that I looked up to. And I kind of wanted to go to the school they went to. So I, like, set that as goals. Like, Michael Jordan was one of my favorite players. And I knew he went to North Carolina. So North Carolina was always one of my dream schools, too. And then uh, when when the recruiting process got serious, like, when I had to start taking teams serious and stuff like that, I couldn't be a fan anymore. I had to, like, really look in to see what was going to be the best place for me. So when you did that reconnaissance on Florida and you sort of sat down and looked at it, what about the program was the best fit for you and why did it make the most sense for you and your career path? It was just everything I was I was looking for. Nice team. Um I knew a couple of the players. Um I loved the uh coaching staff. We were uh talking and building a relationship since ninth grade. Um my family here. I knew that uh I would be going through some stuff and it, it would be better if I had my family here to help. So um that, that played a big part in it just having my family close and it was, it was just home. Like every time I came here to watch a practice on a visit or something like that, it just felt like home. It just felt normal. So I'm not sure at what point in the process they announced the McDonald's All-Americans, but when that happened and when you were given that, that honor and that distinction, what was that like? Because I'm sure it, it's exciting, but there's probably also you know pressure that's attached to it and people just raise their expectation levels for you just based on you know one recognition like that. That was the biggest thing in my life that happened so far um, because that was one of my goals since I was, like, younger. Like, everybody knows about the McDonald's All-American game and stuff like that. And it's just crazy that I I was a McDonald's All-American looking back now. Like, a kid from Gainesville, 
McDonald's All American. I mean, that's not like that doesn't happen a lot. So no. it, it was big. I was with my family. My whole family came over because I guess they knew before. So my whole family came over to watch it with me. And then when they called my name or when they showed it on the TV, it was it was just an indescribable feeling. Uh, my family hugging me and all that stuff. We were all smiling and laughing. <laughs> and um, it was it was cool to have that recognition. And it was just showing me that a lot of my hard work paid off. But it did come with some pressure, uh, especially the, the couple games after. Like, we, we played that night, that same day in the Mount Verde tournament. And it was just like I played a couple people who I know didn't make it. And like I could tell, like, they, they had something against me, like, they were coming at me. And so, like, it was more pressure to perform and stuff like that. But after a while, I got – I just I just went back to normal and just knew that I was playing a half fun and just getting ready for college. Mm-hmm. Well, and once you got on campus, what would you say were the biggest adjustments you had to make, both on the court and then off the court as well, just, you know, adjusting to becoming a college student? Um, Off the court, I would have to say it was, like, being responsible because – you don't have people like telling you what you got to do when you got to be there and stuff like that. I mean, they help us out here, like our coaches and stuff like that. But the responsibility is on you. Um, you got to know what time you got to be to class and all that stuff. I mean, high school, it was it was all set up. But college is like you got to know what you got to do. And then on the court, it was kind of hard for me because like my whole life, I just been able to, to come out and be the best player. And here it was players just as good as me, better than me, and I had to work for like the position I'm in now. I know a lot of times new players will lean on some of the older guys, although this team doesn't have many older guys, but I would imagine there's at least one or two guys who were really impactful for you in, in helping you make that jump. Uh, who were those individuals and, and why were they helpful to you? Um, it was definitely Noah and Andrew because um, as soon as I came in, like they, they just welcomed me like they they took me out to get food and stuff whenever they went. They just tried to make me feel like like comfortable here. And then once the season started, like not even the season, but once we started practicing and all of that, they like saw me going through stuff that they went through before. So they would like find time to talk to me about it and just let me know everything was gonna be all right. And then they're still they're still doing it now. Like after games, like they're telling me what to do, what not to do, like don't get on Twitter or nothing like that. And mm-hmm. then keep my head up, just keep working. They told like Noah me and Noah went through the same exact stuff. Like, he told me, he was like, he came in, he, he wasn't playing a lot, and it was hard and all of that. And he knew I was going through the same thing. So he just he just talked to me a lot, and he still does. So I have to say it's them too, for sure. When you got into your first game and the moment was real, what were the nerves like for you, and how did you overcome them in that moment and then maybe, you know, in, in subsequent moments as you kind of got used to that experience? It was more exciting than, than nervous for me. I'm just seeing all the, the rowdies out there. And then I was on the bench like before they called the, the starters and all of that stuff. And I told Noah, I was like, it's crazy because I was just here last year watching y'all. And it looked just the same, like all the, the fans there and the lights off and the things on the court moving and junk like that. So I was telling Noah before the game, like, this is crazy. It was just unbelievable. And then um, I was a little bit nervous like during tip off. But, but then once they tipped the ball and I got the ball in my hands, it just felt like normal again, so the nerves kind of went away, and then it was just all about playing basketball again. You mentioned Bradley Beal being one of these people earlier, uh, but other than him, which players at the next level do you most admire and, and try to model your game after? Um, the players I admire the most would have to be Dwayne Wade, uh, Kevin Durant, uh, Admiral Schofield. Yeah, I have to say those players because um I, I have relationships with those players, so I talk to them a lot, and they text me like after games and things like that. So I just have like a, a real relationship with them, like outside of basketball. So I have to say them, and then the players who I try to model my game after: Bradley Bill, Stephen Curry, um, Trey Young, D'Angelo Russell. He's my favorite player in the NBA right now. What makes him your favorite? How come? It's not even like about that, the basketball part. It's just like how, how he carries himself off the court. Like I see a lot of myself, a chill, laid back dude, like trying to have fun. And that's kind of what I am. So I just see it. And then like his swag on the court is like demeanor. I just feel like I, I play and like kind of like act just like him, like on the court. You listed the, the trio of guys you have a personal relationship. And I to have a personal relationship with Kevin Durant's pretty cool. Uh, how did you establish those ties with them? And, and what are those bonds like now? Um, Kevin Durant, our relationship started, um, at Peace Jam last year. Well, when I was at Peace Jam my last year, um, he came and watched the game. And then, um, after the game, 
he talked to me and then he told me to like to text him and, and hit him up and call him whenever I need him, stuff like that. So it's just been like that ever since then. I text him every now and then. Um, he texts me asking how the season's going and stuff. And then Dwayne Wade, um, his son Zaire, I played against Zaire when I was in the seventh grade and Zaire was in the sixth grade. He came to that game. And after the game, like, it was just a whole big old crowd surrounding him. And he was just trying to get to his truck. And when he got to his truck, he, like, looked, turned around and looked like I was all the way in the back, but I could still see him. And then um, turned around, he was like, where's number 25 from, from our game? Like, he was looking for me. So they started telling me. And then I went up to him and he shook my hand. He told me he thought I was really good and that I had a future. And then he just told me to keep keep working and stuff. And then me and Zaire became close. And then um, Zaire came and played with my team, each one teach one. And then, like, that's how, how we got, like, really close. Like, Dwayne Wade gave me his number. Um, we text all the time about stuff outside of basketball, basketball. And I look up to him, like, as a bigger brother, like an older brother. And then Admiral, I knew him from the recruiting process because um, I went on my visit to Tennessee. And I just I just saw him in there working. He was working out, and we talked for a little bit. And he, he told me, like, he, he knew who I was before I came. Here and how he was a big fan and he, he wanted to be that the big brother for me because like he was in college for four years so he was like yeah I'm gonna I'm help you get through this so just text me whenever you need me. and we talk all the time like he called me in the beginning of the season he called me a couple of days ago and I'm pretty sure you're gonna call soon like just to <laughs> check up see how the season going so that's really cool that's cool um you know, we, we've talked a lot of basketball I want to go off the court here can you tell us a little bit about what you like to do in your free time you've established that chilling is part of it but other than that what what's like an ideal weekend like if you don't have to worry about any games um if i don't have to worry about any games i try to catch up on sleep a little bit and uh hang out with family because i don't have a lot of time to do that but if there's no games or practices or nothing like that that's what i usually have to go do i go hang out with my uncle or my mom or my dad uh we go get food watch a movie just just hang out and then um i play the game a little bit Fortnite. that's the game i play off the court, I think I'm like a funny, like outgoing guy. I just like to hang around people and just like laugh and things like that. Mm-hmm. What was the last movie you saw in theaters? It's been a little minute, so I gotta, <laughs> I gotta see. Because um, the movie I go to, the movies I go to is um, the theater in the villages because um, my uncle works there, and so we get in for free. Oh, like, nice! It's a rule, like if you if a family member works there, they get tickets or whatever. So yeah. We, we used to go all the time, me and my uh, friend Terry. Um, so I got to see, let me see, what was the last movie? The Conjuring. Ooh, the Conjuring okay. 2, like when that when that first came out. You like the scary stuff? Yeah, I like I like scary movies. Ooh. And that one was just good. Like, most of the scary movies aren't good. So, <laughs> yeah, but that one was good. The, oh, the last movie that I saw was um, Jumanji 2, the new, the new Jumanji. Yeah, that was good, right? Um, it, was, it was okay. It's I like okay. the first one better. I like the first one better. That was the last movie I saw. It hasn't been that. It's been what? That's a couple months. It's not terrible. You're in season. People yeah. understand, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you talked about going to you know get food and find some good spots in Gainesville. Uh, you would know more about that probably than most people that are on campus since you grew up there. What are some of your favorite spots to take people that there maybe are a little under the radar? Under the radar. Let me see. I like Yamato's. Bahama Breeze. I don't know if these are under the radar, but these are the spots that I try to take people to go get food from, like when I go with them. Um, Jersey Mike's. I feel like Jersey Mike's is under the radar. <laughs> like I, I know people know about it, but I don't think they realize how good it is. So mm-hmm. um, I like I like Harry's, the seafood place. China One, um, the Ocean Buffet. That's that seems legit underrated because that that's not a chain. I think that counts as being underrated. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, it's a little off the beaten path. Um, do you have any hidden talents that would surprise people? We know what you can do on the court. Anything off the court you can do that would uh, that would be kind of a, a surprise to someone? Um, I like to dance. People, well, a lot of people know that I like to dance now because, like, I'm always over all over social media dancing and stuff like that. Um, I make music. I like to rap. Hmm. Then I have a little a little walk, like it's like a dancing walk that I do, and like people think it's pretty cool. Like everybody on the team think it's pretty cool and then when i show people out in public they think it's cool too so it's like a little not like a moonwalk but it's like a like a little float walk type thing i'm not really sure what it's called it sounds like you you're almost in in competition with scotty is is that like can you sort of feel that coming together some kind of showdown coming up um no i think scotty will win he still got um, you yeah scotty scotty's a singer and he, he can sing really well so it's something that he actually 
does like all the time. So I'm gonna give I'm gonna give that one more. Have you guys talked about doing a track together? Because he could he could do the chorus, you could do the verse, right? I mean, if you it seems like you you could combine your talents there. Oh yeah, we we definitely talked about that before. Now it's just a matter of time to do it. So, <laughs> so we we actually might do it after the season. That's cool. We'll, we'll look for that in the off season. Um, final couple of things for you, bringing it back to the court. I know that, you know, on the court, things haven't gone as well for you early on as you would have hoped, but when do you feel like you really found your stride and started to make that turn and what triggered it for you? I have to say the, the Baylor game, I played pretty good. I thought, um, we lost, but that, that's what made it not good. Like it would have been good, but we lost. So I feel like I played all right. And, um, it just it brought a lot of confidence out because I was struggling before just going out and like wasn't comfortable and then I went out against Baylor like they're the number team number one team in the country and um I scored a couple times on them and I just felt like like comfortable just playing so like after all the games like that's the number one team in the country and I, I showed that I could play and stuff like that so after that I just been having a lot of confidence going into games and now I'm taking more shots and hitting shots and just just playing comfortable. You know, this time of year, fans get so caught up with bracketology, who's in, who's out, who's in the bubble. How difficult is it not to get pulled into that? Because it's obviously out there. How do you how do you not kind of get sucked into that conversation? It's hard because you see everything on social media. But um, all you could really do is just control what you can control. And um, my coach, he told us not to not to get into that stuff because um, it doesn't matter. It matters about what we're doing, and it's just it's just hard to to do it like that because everybody knows that's that's everybody's goal if you play college basketball to, to be in the tournament and to win games and stuff like that. So it's hard to not think about stuff like that and look at the stuff people are saying, but you just got to remember at the end of the day, you got to control what you can control. So that's what we're trying to do now. Final question for you. In terms of your game in particular, you talked about the confidence growing and how that's helped you. What aspects of your game are you most focused on improving as you head down the stretch of the season? I'm um, just being able to make open shots for my team because I know they're going to need me to, to make some some shots for us to win some games. So just really making open shots. Well, we hope you have a lot of success doing that down the stretch. Thank you so much for talking to us and good luck the rest of the year. All right. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice. And please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to visit FloridaGators.com for all the latest news on the orange and blue, including scores, schedules, and more. Then come back next week for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Gainesville.